Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Big Ten uh, Weekly Hoops podcast. Uh, this is Steve, and we're here with Brett as well, as usual. And we have in store for you guys today perhaps the, the most exciting episode of the year so far, where we talk about the first four days uh, of the NCAA tournament um, and recap recap in, in, in detail and look ahead to what's what's coming next here for the conference as a whole. Uh, Brett, how do you feel after those four days of crazy basketball, not just in the Big Ten, uh, but across the country? And, and actually, I shouldn't just say it's four days because we had two Big Ten teams in the first four. It was really six days of chaotic basketball across the, the conference and across the nation. Steve, there are three words to describe how I'm feeling right now. And those words are this is March. Uh, it's been it's been an amazing tournament so far. Um, you know, it's I, I feel like just from a from a holistic standpoint, I feel like uh, Saturday and Sunday kind of were the more gripping upset heavy games. We still saw a lot of really good basketball uh, Thursday, Friday. There are some great games on Tuesday and Wednesday. Um, I mean, the, you know, the tournament's back in full and and that makes me just about as happy as, as I can be um, when when thinking about sports as a whole. It's, you know, it, as we've talked about, it's it's the best weekend of the year um, from a sports standpoint. And uh, this this year did not disappoint. So uh, I think I watched about 72 hours of basketball. I still love basketball and uh, it's I'm excited to see what comes next. And, and speaking of, I mean great basketball no no better place to start as far as games featuring big 10 teams than the thriller that we saw in Dayton uh, on Wednesday night between the fighting Irish of Notre Dame and and Rutgers I'll start off by saying just what what a what a great game what a heartbreaking game to kind of walk away from if you're the Rutgers Scarlet Knights both teams shot over 50 percent from the field so it was a well-played game in all respects uh, Notre Dame only had five turnovers. Um, I, I can't recall any game that we talked about featuring a Big Ten team where they only turned the ball over five times. And you know, Rutgers is one of the best defenses in the conference, if not one of the best defenses in the country. I mean, we saw a career game from Caleb McConnell. We saw crazy shots down the stretch, um, and and just you know, two teams that you know really wanted to be part of the Big Dance, and unfortunately, Rutgers fell short. I mean, Brett, what what were you thinking as you were watching this game? Um, not not just about you know the fact that it was a crazy game, but about how Rutgers kind of showed themselves specifically. Yeah, I mean, I think most of my my internal monologue during that game was just holy shit, I can't believe hit that he hit that shot, and oh my god, I can't believe he hit that shot, and oh my god, they hit another like you know twenty seven foot three, um, and yeah, so you, you mentioned you mentioned Caleb McConnell, and I mean. You know, the read on him coming in is that he's one of the best, if not the best on ball defender in the Big Ten. Uh, also a great off ball defender, um, you know, does leads led the conference in steals. And uh, I mean, he had probably the offensive game of his life, um, a, you know, 23 points on what, 10 for 10 for 12 from the field uh, for a guy, you know, when he and he they pretty much needed those shot. A lot of those shots, uh, especially I, I believe his. One of one of his threes kind of came at a really clutch time for for Rutgers. And uh, I mean, you know, he's a senior and and so are, are Harper and, and Baker. And uh, I 
don't know if McConnell can. Oh, I think he might have the option to come back next year. I don't know what he's going to do, but I mean, what a way, what a way for him to go out. Uh, you know, it was it was cool to see that, and that's that's why we watch the tournament is for guys to have moments like that. But yeah, it's it, there's only so much you can do at a certain point, and if you let your opponent shoot 59% from two, you're going to have uh, a tough time winning any game. Yeah, Paul Paul Atkinson Jr., you know, who had the had the shot at the end to seal it for Notre Dame. He was 13 of 15, you know, most of that on on shots from close range. Um, and, you know, even uh, one of uh, Notre Dame's bench bench guys, you know, went went for 18 as well. I um, mean, Rutgers really had to ride their starters for for most of the game. All their starters, you know, four of them played 44 minutes or more. Um, and Omar really was really the only guy um, rotating in and out there. So, you know, yeah, overall, just a, a punch to the gut for Rutgers. But he, here's the thing I will say, and not that, you know, obviously everyone's season has a, an arc to it, which, you know, teams go through rough stretches, teams go through stretches that, you know, they're having success. Rutgers really has to be looking back on those three losses um, in November, December that effectively put them in this game in the first place. Had, had they not lost to, you know, those three teams and had their net ranking pulling them down, you know, they would have been in the field. And I think they would have been a really tough out, which kind of showed here. Um, so moving on, the other Big Ten team that played in the first four, Indiana Hoosiers, um, and, and they um, were a lot more successful than, than Rutgers, not you know, wasn't, I guess, as kind of thrilling as a game that we saw there, but they they pretty much handled uh, Wyoming. You know, it they kept them within arm's length. Uh, Trace Jackson Davis, you know, and I feel like we talk about him every time we talk about Indiana. You know, he he continued his his hot stretch, had 29 points on 16 shots and, and nine of 11 from the free throw line, too. Do not want to underestimate that. Um, they kind of kept EK and Maldonado. Not that they didn't have good games. Like, they, they had good games, but they, you know, kind of forced them to at least, you know, get all their points on a relatively high amount of shots and, and really prevented Wyoming from uh, getting any sort of rhythm on offense, only held them to 58 points. Um, so that was great for Indiana to get in the field, but it clearly wasn't, um, they, they didn't have the firepower to do anything after that. They got spanked by St. Mary's and there was a lot of talk about the, you know, the, the quick turnaround time, the flight out to Portland, you know, and they sort of hung with them a little bit at the beginning, but I guess, Given, you know, like the Hoosiers, you could argue, only got in because of how they performed in the Big Ten tournament. And it was, I think, great for them to get back over that hump this year after a couple of years of underperforming. I mean, how, how do you feel about Indiana, both about their performance, but about kind of where their program's sitting? Yeah, I think uh, so. The the big the the big thing for Indiana was getting that first win and like making the field of 64 and you know I think that more than anything is a sign that like Mike Woodson was able to right the ship the guy the the players on the court bought in Trace Jackson Davis you know kind of had a rocky mid stretch to that season as did Xavier Johnson but and Johnson didn't have a great game against Wyoming but you know he he was taking care of the ball and Jackson Davis obviously was very efficient from both the field and the line. And they got just enough contributions from the rest of their team. Jordan Geronimo was really big that game at 15 points, played really great defense. Uh, was pretty instrumental because, you know, Maldonado and, and EK are kind of weird, like kind of tweeners uh, for, for their size. You know, not overwhelmingly large or overwhelmingly athletic, but can play a number of different positions. And uh, the defensive effort from Indiana was was really great, uh, along with, you know, with Grace Thompson. And so, 
you see you see the younger guys sort of buying in. I, you know, personally think that, you know, a guy like Trey Galloway probably should have been playing more this season, uh, given the skill set that he has and what Indiana was lacking at certain times. Um, and, and when it comes to the St. Mary's game, like the style of play that St. Mary's has and the guys that they have to to you know implement that style of play are very difficult to pl- to prep for on two days when they have a full week uh, to to put in, you know, figure out what kind of concepts you're running. So disappointing way for Indiana to go out, but I, I don't begrudge them really. I mean, it would probably would have been nice to lose by less than 30 and not have the highlight of your, your game be the cheerleaders uh, getting the ball down from the top of the backboard. But I think the, it, the Wyoming win and getting into the tournament in the first place shows that things are at least headed the right way for now. Obviously there's going to be some roster turnover most likely, but uh, good, good end to the team, to the season to kind of get some positive momentum going forward that way. And I think that that has to be the theme for Indiana going forward. I mean, admittedly, I am used to an Indiana team, you know, over the last decade who, you know, whether it was Crean or Miller, um, you, you didn't get consistency from them. You know, Crean, his teams would play really well in big games and then kind of um, not look engaged when they were playing lesser opponents. And Archie Miller just couldn't seem to figure it out one way or another. I I was used to an Indiana team that, was not ready to meet the moment. And they, they met the moment this year in the Big Ten tournament. Um, and I think it's it's great for their program to get that momentum back. Um, and so we'll see what Mike Woodson can do with a, a tournament appearance in his first year. Um, and with, you know, um, hopefully some success in recruiting and the transfer portal. And, um, you know, we'll see if they can kind of crack the upper tier of the conference here soon. Uh, so shifting gears a, a little bit, there's another Big Ten team that lost on Thursday. Um, and this is probably what I would call the at least biggest surprise of the first round um, among Big Ten teams. So the Iowa Hawkeyes, you know, the hottest, arguably one of the hottest teams in the country, um, coming off uh, four wins in four days at the Big Ten tournament, um, skyrocketing all the way to a five seed, um, really lays an egg against uh, the 12-seeded Richmond Spiders, um, who, you know, had to win the A-10 just to get in. They probably would have gotten in um, had, had they not won. You know, and Iowa, in what's kind of become a theme under Fran McCaffrey, you know, kind of shows up disjointed to the tournament. 36% shooting from the field, 21% from three. It was, you know, Keegan Murray, um, a very inefficient Patrick McCaffrey, and not a lot from anyone else especially the guys like Perkins and Bohannon and Chris Murray, who um, were all key cogs in their run um, in Indianapolis, you know, really kind of laid an egg. Now, all that being said, this game was close at the end and Iowa had a chance to win it. But um, unfortunately, as I said before, you know, Iowa fans have to be frustrated with the consistent underperformance um, in the tournament, even though this team was was kind of a, a surprise based on preseason expectations. Yeah. And I think, I think, you know, and, and for the record, we will be doing uh, a couple episodes after the tournament's over where we talk about, you know, how, how fan bases should feel about each team, um, you know, with the, within the context of the whole season. And that's going to be really important when you consider, especially this Iowa team. But I mean, this game, I, you know, not, not to, not to, you know, toot my own horn or anything, but I had, I had said that you, Richmond's a team that, <clears throat> thrives in the half court where they're able to set up their Princeton offense and just take advantage of, of aggressive defense and passing lanes and, and score off back cuts. And, you know, that wasn't, a, you know, they didn't just get back cut to death, but Iowa doesn't play their best 
in that in a half court game, they play their best when they're especially this version of Iowa with Keegan Murray, where they're able to get running and and make things happen in transition. And that just wasn't there for them today. As as you said, Keegan Murray was the only guy who uh, and who really, really showed up. I mean, McCaffrey, Patrick McCaffrey had 18 points, but he you know, he took 17 shots to get there. Um they got nothing from pretty much anybody else. They're six for nine for six for 29, excuse me, from 20 from three. Uh, and and they turned the ball over 11 times. And, you know, their, their defense is, was kind of suspect all year. And they let Richmond get to the line a lot. And Jacob Gilliard was able to really take over down the stretch and, uh, you know, make life miserable in, in the half court for Iowa. And that's that's where things kind of fell apart for the Hawkeyes. We'll see where I goes from here. Keegan Murray's probably going to the draft. Um, but uh, they, they kind of likely return some interesting pieces. Um, and, you know, we'll see what kind of step up Chris Murray t- takes. Um, but it, it's hard to, I think it'll be hard for Iowa fans to walk away from the season feeling like they made progress, even though I think relative to where they started, they, they did make a lot of progress. Um, you could argue just by, you know, getting to the dance. Switching gears now. Uh, let's talk about Michigan State. So they uh, won their first round game um, against Davidson. I think everyone was here for the Foster Lawyer revenge game. We didn't get that. Instead, we got a 27-point performance from Joey Hauser, um, which was who was kind of the standout in, in what was mostly a game that was really kind of played within a 10-point window for, for most of it. And Michigan State just kind of took control of it at the end. Very much an Izzo-like March performance. You know, but then they turned around and played Duke. And, you know, I think I want to give a lot of credit to Tom Izzo this season. You know, um, they, they didn't have a great year last year, even though they made the tournament, you know, got bounced in the first four. Um, and, you know, they struggled to put it together at points throughout the season, but they, they just kept finding ways to win without really an elite, um, an elite like superstar. Um, and, you know, Obviously, Duke was too much for them, but I think I would find it hard if you're a Michigan State fan to kind of be disappointed with how the season went, with how tough they showed themselves in the tournament. Yeah, I mean, I think I think like you said, that that Davidson win was vintage, like hang around until you can finally finally take take over the game. Joey Hauser realized that his his size and shooting as a four man is is something different than that this Davidson team has seen. And they were able to kind of stymie. Uh, a pretty lethal Davidson offense when when they needed to. And I mean, yeah, like you said, this is not a Michigan State team with much if much NBA talent there. Um, and so for them to kind of be able to hold their own and, and make a comeback uh, against Duke uh, is is very impressive considering, you know, the, the, the talent disparity. I mean, Paulo Boncaro is is on a whole nother level from pretty much anybody on, on Duke uh, and as is, you know, or on Michigan state as is Mark Williams. Uh, and that's before we even talk about a guy like AJ Griffin, who's also probably a likely, you know, top five pick this year. Um, but, you know, I think, I think the Michigan state played hard the entire game fell short a little bit at the end, but I mean, they only turned the ball over seven times um, and were, were sharing the ball and, and shot well from three. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, when you're when you're an, a seven seed playing a two seed, that's pretty much what you what you want to see. And and the TV networks get their dream at least to last another day of of Coach K uh, potentially ending his career in New Orleans. So we'll see if that narrative plays out. Um, but 
now I want to switch gears and talk about a team kind of in a similar boat, the Ohio State Buckeyes. Uh, so they arguably put in the defensive performance of the tournament um, in their first round game against Loyola. If you want to call it that, um, what's good defense to some is bad offense to others. But Ohio State held Loyola to 27% shooting from the field, 28, uh, 29% from three, and got to credit that free throw defense as well. 30% uh, from free throws Loyola shot in that game um, in, to total 41 points total. Ohio State didn't really play well on offense, um, and you can kind of highlight that by their uh, gaudy 7% um, shooting effort from three. They went one for 15 from three in that game. But nonetheless, um, in what you know has kind of become a, uh, kind of Chris Holtman's calling card, their, their defense you know won them a game in the tournament, which I think they were a popular upset pick just given how they've been sliding. You know, looked really not good in losses to Maryland and Nebraska at the end of the season. Um, it was good for them to to, to get this game. And then, you know, they got punched by Villanova pretty hard and actually came back to kind of make it interesting um, at the end of that game. Um, I don't know what to make of this team because I, I thought Ohio State's ceiling was going to be higher at the beginning of the year. And we documented how injuries played a role into that. But I, I actually think in a similar vein, I wouldn't be too disappointed with um, how Ohio State showed themselves in this in this tournament if I'm an Ohio State fan. Yeah, I mean, I think again, like being in a being a seven seed puts you at a, an inherent like disadvantage of having to play that two seed in the second round. And they, you know, for for everything everyone said about Villanova this entire year, like they showed up and and you know were able to kind of put a game away, even though Ohio State did, as you mentioned, uh, really really kind of take that punch and and make a comeback. But I think the really interesting thing was was their game against Loyola, which uh, can om- only charitably be called basketball was yeah like they made life absolutely miserable for for a really really good player in Lucas Williamson I mean he he was one for 10 from the field and I mean they you know the one for six from free throws didn't isn't necessarily their deal but they made him work for everything he tried to get um and he was obviously the focal point of their of their prep uh on defense and they just really really made life hell and Kyle Young was was really big in that regard. And yeah, you got, you got a, a kind of vintage Liddell game with uh 16 and, and I believe 10 there. Um, and yeah, I mean, Villanova is a very fundamentally sound team and they honestly, it's not a terrible matchup for Ohio state because there's no overwhelming size on, on Villanova, but their wings just kind of, as we've talked about, you know, Ohio state had some issues with the wings and guard play and they just weren't able to keep up. Uh, with a guy like Colin Gillespie or a guy like Jermaine Samuels uh, kind of attacking from the guard and the wing. But, you know, getting that win over Loyola, who at the time, you know, by the time the, the game started, they were it was a pick em, uh And, you know, Ohio State was kind of one of those teams that everyone thought was going to get upset that first day. For them not to, uh, I think, is a credit to Chris Holtman and the work that, that the players put in. And uh, keeping keeping the game relatively close versus Villanova is is nothing to sneeze at, in my opinion. All right. So at this point, we've been kind of uh, avoiding the, uh, I think, major headliners. Um, and so, so now we're going to kind of get into uh, the, the major headliners from the conference as far as their tournament performances, both the good and the bad. So uh, we'll start with the bad first. Uh, let's talk about the fighting Illini. Uh, so uh, in what was, I, I mean, with again, without being overly harsh, and what I would call probably the worst performance of a team that won a game in the first round, Illinois found a way to beat Chattanooga. Um, Chattanooga by no means played 
well in this game either. Uh, but they had an opportunity to to take that game from Illinois. I don't want to say they gave it away, but you know they they put themselves in great position with their defense, with their toughness, um, and by really making Illinois uncomfortable on offense to win the game at the end, um, they just couldn't close it out. Uh, but then you know Illinois in turning around to play Houston, you know, there's going to be a lot of talk about the technical um, on that uh, dunk by R.J. Melendez that. Um, Illinois fans will claim was a, a a momentum swinger, but I mean, really, this Houston team at the end of the day was just was was tougher, met the moment, and um, you know had a counter for everything that Illinois threw at them. And now, you know, Illinois is staring at the face with um, staring in the face of two of their best kind of seasons, at least in the last twenty years. Um, and, and they don't have a Sweet Sixteen appearance to show for it. Um, how do you think people are feeling around the Illinois program right now? I mean, that's kind of a loaded question, isn't it? Right? Like, they still got a conference championship out of this year. If, you know, they have – last year we're not going to get into, but, like, they were cont- they were contenders in the conference last year. And, I, I mean, as 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 my – my you know, that does, I think losing in the se- second round to a really, really good Houston team doesn't really take – doesn't take away from that. It – is I mean this Houston team ended up being you know as as we've kind of seen all year is kind of an enigma because they had one quad maybe one quad one win um despite having the gaudy like win loss record and they lost two of their best players but Kelvin Sampson is a really good coach and was able to put together not only a good game plan but have still have enough guys to put that into effect um so I guess I you know it, it's 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 hard to win six games in a row. It's hard to win three games in a row. Like it's, you know, the tournament is, we love the tournament because it's so unpredictable and you know, that's only one team in this tournament is going to win its last game. So I'm not saying that and I should have national championship expectations, but I think that, you know, I, I saying that this was, you know, and I'm not, I'm not an Illinois fan, so I don't know exactly what that fan base is thinking, but you know, getting a conference championship out of this season, especially when they were not projected to finish in the top three, is has to feel at least fairly satisfying. But that being said, the issues that we had talked about all season really started to kind of rear their head, um, even at the, even during that Indiana Big Ten tournament game, um, but especially against Chattanooga, which you know had had a chance to win at the buzzer. Um, you know, Illinois turned the ball over 22, almost 22% of the time. Uh, they were three of 17 from three. Kofi, you know, didn't shoot well from the line and they didn't overwhelmingly win the rebounding battle. Um, and, you know, uh, this Chattanooga team had a lot of experienced guards that played well enough to win that game. And, you know, when you get to Houston, I mean, again, it was it was bad shooting. They were six for 25 from three. And a lot of that was kind of when the game was starting to get desperate. But I mean, six, six made threes when you're as reliant on that as Illinois is, is not good. Kofi took 11 shots. Uh, and they turned the ball over 17 times, which is 27% of the time, which is even over their lofty average. So, you know, I think, and, and I do agree that tech was, was, was BS, but I mean, it's not like they were playing well enough to win that game. If that tech hadn't happened. I, I think the, the contrarian view that I'll take here is March is unpredictable, right? Um, and some teams are made for it and some teams are not. Um, and I, I think there has been 
a lot of excitement around the Illinois program over the last popular years. Um, some of it merited, um, but but some of it, it admittedly not merited um, around them being a, a final four caliber team. Um, you know, and, and maybe not at the beginning of this year after Iowa left, but as they, you know, as they started playing well, I think that, you know, there were talks of that. Um, I don't know that Brad Underwood has, has what it takes to lead a team through March. Um, and I think you see that evidenced on the court by teams, you know, coming out, not executing effectively, um, a lot of turnovers, a lot of perplexing X's and O's stuff, like not getting Kofi the the ball enough and um, kind of, you know, sticking too much with uh, guys that he shouldn't as far as his rotations go. I mean, there are tangible examples um, of of evidence to to show that. Um, Whereas on the flip side, we're very used to in the Big Ten seeing teams that are made for March, you know, that consistently advance. You know, we just talked about one um, as far as Michigan State. So, while I hear you and I think, you know, no one can take away the the banner. I, I do think it's going to be time to start asking questions about Brad Underwood and um, his ability to lead a team deep into March. That's um, that's fair. I just want one, I guess one counterpoint to that is I actually thought he did a pretty good job coaching in the Houston game by benching Curbelo, who was all over the place and sticking with a couple of young guys who in, in RJ Melendez and Luke Goody, who I think both have pretty bright futures and uh, you know, played well when they were called upon. I mean, Goody, Goody missed a, you know, a, a few shots towards the end of the game, but I mean, when things were kind of threatening to to slip away at the beginning, at the end of the first half, you know, he kept them in and rode them in the second half uh, as much as he could for, and I, you know, I think it would have been, would have been worse if he hadn't done that. So I, I don't, I think that he did an, a good enough job, but I, you know, when the shots aren't going down as well, as well we will talk about uh, coaching can only do so much. We'll table that conversation for later. Um, let's move on to the other big disappointment um, out of the conference um, to not get out of the, the first weekend, the Wisconsin Badgers. Um, so similar to Illinois, they played a game that was probably a little bit too close for comfort in the first round against um, Colgate credit to Colgate. Um, they made their shots um, and, and uh, can oddly controlled tempo um, in uh, against the Wisconsin team that almost always controls tempo, at least uh, for the first 20 to 25 minutes of that game. Uh, but Wisconsin was just too much um, at the end. Um, Johnny Davis woke up uh, and they rode him to the finish line to, secure the win on Friday. Uh, but then came Sunday um, and, you know, a lot went wrong for the Badgers. Um, Chucky Hepburn went down with an injury early um, and did not return. And that forced them to do unnatural things like play Jacoby Neath 22 minutes and Jordan Davis 11 minutes. Um, I, I don't think, uh, I don't think they were hoping that they were going to have to do that going into that game. Um, Johnny Davis, 17 points on 16 shots. Um, 17 turnovers, uh, very uncharacteristic of Wisconsin. And it's not really like Iowa State. Oh, and before I talk about that, two for 22 from three, that's good for 9%. Um, really un-Wisconsin-like in that regards. Not like Iowa State played played a game either, but they, they scored just enough to, to secure a win, and they're going to the Sweet 16. Um, so, Brett, um, talk to me about Wisconsin. Yeah, I mean, the, the big thing that I had underscored pretty much this entire year was that Depth was going to be an issue with this team, and this is a game where where Wisconsin missed Lauren Bowman more than anything. 
Uh, he's he's still you know away from the team right now, dealing with what the school has called a non-COVID uh, sickness or illness or something. And I mean, they, so they're basically rolling with one one real point guard with with a guy in Brad Davison who could play kind of spot minutes at point guard. Um, but that's that's not where he's best. It's not where he's been his best. And when Hepburn went down with with what seemed like a pretty serious ank- left ankle injury, um, you know, the team was going to have to adjust in ways that they hadn't really before this season because they'd always had, you know, Bowman to eat some of those minutes or they could play Davison for, you know, three to f- three minutes at a time at, at point and, and get, you know, some some different looks. But I mean, things were still pretty, pretty kind of up in the air. Uh, I think Wisconsin had just taken a, a two or three point lead uh, when Hepburn went down and it just, everyone looked pretty shell shocked. Um, Iowa state plays a very interesting, like no middle post double heavy defense. And I, Tyler wall and, and Steven Krause specifically just looked like they totally lost their heads when, when that happened. Um, and I mean, they would do bad passes, bad decisions, but I mean, yeah, the, the big, the big thing is going to be the two for 22 from three. And it's not like they were taking a bunch of contested shots. It was just guys that weren't used to taking this number of shots were taking a lot of them. You know, Jacoby Neath had took a couple shots. Jordan Davis was one for three. Even Isaac Lindsay came off the bench and immediately, immediately pulled a three. He hadn't played more than one minute since I think December. And it just, you know, for as good of a coaching season as, as Greg Gard has had, I think this was just a game where he didn't have any answers. Um, and, you know, we, we can, we can, talk about some of the, the you know the, the officiating as, for the tournament as a whole has been another thing that's not why they lost this game but you know I think when defenses are able to triple team Johnny Davis he gets frustrated and forces shots and when this team is kind of settling into those isolation plays they're not at their best as we saw um, if there had been even remotely a you know, an outside threat from, from, uh, Crowell or David's Davison, or, you know, even Neath who can be a, a semi-reliable shooter at times, then the post defense would have had to, you know, lay off a little bit and wall would have been able to go to work more, but, you know, he was in foul trouble and turning the ball over and, you know, in the tournament, that's not, that's not going to get you a win, even, even over a team that is as disjointed offensively as Iowa state can be. Cause Wisconsin had a shot to win this game. They were down five. Iowa state missed eight shots in a row or they're down 10 Iowa state missed eight shots in a row. And all they could do was, was shave five points off that lead. Yeah. So uh, that was a, a rough way to kind of cap what was a, a disappointing um, at least uh, second round for the, the conference as a whole. Um, however, there were, there were two teams. There are two big 10 teams still, still standing at the end of this. Um, the two that everyone expected, right? Um, the Michigan Wolverines and Purdue Boilermakers. So first we'll talk about Michigan. Their game against Colorado State was really a tale of two halves. I mean, they, they were down 15 points in the first half. Um, but uh, Colorado State shot really well from three. But um, eventually they exploited their um, humongous height advantage with Hunter Dickinson um, and got a, a really good contribution from Frankie Collins um, filling in for Devonte Jones, who was out of that game with a concussion. Um, and, and, and they, you know, dominated from there on out and won that game by double digits to um, notch the 11, six upset there. Um, and, and then rode that over the three seeded Tennessee volunteers who um, many in the national circles thought they were um, actually under as a three seed. Um, but, um, Hunter Dickinson um, showed up big with 27 and 11 in that game. Uh, 
Eli Brooks also scored 23 points on five assists um, and made some big shots um, in the clutch um, while also playing 39 minutes in that game. He's only sat one minute um, in the tournament. They got nine big points from Terrence William off the bench. And again, Frankie Collins um, filled in productively for Devontae Jones, who um, looks like sustained another sort of concussion-like injury in that game, trying to come back. But Michigan um, you know, shot 50% from the field in that game. Uh, Tennessee shot 11% from three and did not look like the stalwart that most of the SEC teams who faced them kind of saw throughout the regular season. And it's Michigan advancing to the Sweet 16. Um, I think a lot of uh, conflicting feelings by the the rest of the the Big Ten and seeing this team advance. But what did you see out of Michigan that um, was able to kind of get them through here uh, that, you know, maybe we didn't see out of some other Big Ten teams? Yeah, so I think – so, well, first of all, the national media needs to remember that Rick Barnes did not go to the Sweet 16 with Kevin Durant. And, I, I you know, you, everyone falls into this trap every year with this ten, with these Tennessee teams. And, I, I, you know, he's still not there. Obviously, that's not why Michigan won this game. But, like, it's just it's just it's funny to me at this point. So the I mean, the interesting thing is that, you know, I I think whenever I talk about Michigan, I harp on the fact that Hunter Dickinson should be shooting more like he's their best player. Give him give him the damn ball. And, you know, he got to the line 10 times, which is good, but he still only took 13 shots against against Tennessee. And that was including I think he hit two shots, like two threes within like the first five ish minutes of the game. And that sort of changed how Tennessee impacted things. Those those two threes going on because they were really Tennessee was really, really active at blitzing ball screens, which let Dickinson kind of get into his his comfort zone right at the top of the key and and knock down a couple a couple really, really clutch threes. Um, for, for how Tennessee was playing offensive, for how well Tennessee was playing offensively. Um, and again, you know, with Michigan, this game, this game was definitely one on the offensive end. Um, it was, you know, efficient ball movement, uh, you know, not amazing shooting from three, but good enough. And then just finishing at the rim, uh, they turned the ball over a lot. They turned the ball over 15 times. Um, and, you know, I think, they're, you know, Kennedy Chandler, who's, you know, just just six feet, was able to basically get into the into the lane and score at pretty much at will. And so with, you know, and we'll, we'll talk about this more with Villanova on the on the docket. But uh, it's so, you, you know, Tennessee missed a lot of open threes from the corner that Michigan was was letting them take for whatever reason. So I think the the offense is really kind of what spurred Michigan to these to these two tournament wins. Uh, and you mentioned Frankie Collins. And I think him showing up and just being a steady hand, not, you know, not letting the moment get too big for him, uh, is huge. Um, you know, he played, he played only 11 minutes against Tennessee had only, you know, two turnovers, which for how much he's handling the ball was, was not bad. Uh, and, and pl- had a very steadying hand when things looked dicey against Colorado state with, uh, with no Devonte Jones. So, uh, big ups to him and, uh, he, they're going to need him, you know, to, to kind of keep coming through. If, if Devonte Jones can play, keep that second unit rolling. So Michigan, Michigan heading to the Sweet 16. Um, Purdue's also heading to the Sweet 16. Um, and in the first round, they defeated Yale um, in what was not a very close contest for most of the game. Um, it, I actually didn't think this was necessarily Purdue's best performance, but good sign for Purdue coming out. We, we talked about this, some of the other Big Ten teams sort of struggled in that first game. Uh, again, I, I, I'll say this throughout the did it throughout the year. We'll say it throughout the rest of the podcast. You know, they, they looked the part as far as um, the Big Ten team, most Final Four um, ready. Um, and, and then 
in in their game against Texas, uh, I mean, there's a lot going on there. First off, so um, they they were able to keep Texas at arm's length for most of it, um, and withstood uh, a 23 point performance from Marcus Carr, a former Big Ten player, um, and 17 from Andrew Jones. Um, Texas actually shot the ball decently from three. They shot 36. percent So um, that kept them in it. Uh, Purdue got 22 from Travion Williams in that game. But the the big story for Purdue, which, again, we just don't talk enough about this, 46, yes, 46 free throw attempts from Purdue in that game. They only made 33 of them. But, I mean, they, you know, they, they finally just said enough's enough. They put their head down. Edie shot 12 free throws. Jaden Ivey and Eric Hunter Jr. both shot nine each. Um, and, and they, you know, for one, what was kind of as, I think, comfortable as a NCAA tournament win, as you'll see, there were some tense moments at points, but, um, Purdue moving onto the sweet 16 as well. Um, what are your thoughts upon kind of taking a look at Purdue's performances? I mean, this, this is a game. I feel like if, if Purdue had lost this game, neither of us would have been that surprised, right? Like Texas has the talent to make life miserable for Purdue. Um, you know, they've got Ramey and Jones and Carr are, are a, a trio of experienced guards that, you know, can can affect things, affect the game a lot offensively, but also defensively. And given the troubles that Purdue's had with the ball with ball screen defense this entire year, uh, you know, that com- that 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 combination can really uh, give is, is on paper, give Purdue fits. But Purdue's able to use their size very efficiently um you know Edie and Travion combined for for 33 points and and no one in Texas's rotation is over six seven six seven with the exception of Dylan Disu who played nine minutes so that was good and then uh you know listener Matt reached out to to tell me that you know this was a great game from Painter's perspective in terms of coaching by actually making the making rotations and making decisions based on who was actually playing well so that's why we saw more minutes from a guy like Ethan Morton uh, you know, who hit two threes um, when Stefanovic was 0 for 4 from, from you know, beyond the arc. Caleb first was getting some more minutes um, and Travion played more than Edie. Um, so, you know, the, the rotations are obviously going to be shorter in the tournament, but within that, Painter's willing to be adaptable and, and kind of play guys who are playing well um, speaks speaks volumes about, you know, how he's trying to win games. So very, very impressive. Um you know, despite Ivy not fully taking over and, you know, the free throws obviously can be debated from now until forever, but at the end of the day, producing the sweet 16. They are indeed. Um, so that's it for the recap. Um, before we move to kind of preview um, what's left of the big 10 in the tournament, um, one interesting off the court news that uh, we wanted to touch on briefly Kevin Willard named the head coach of Maryland basketball um, very shortly after Seton Hall lost to TCU in the first round. You know, not surprising that they moved quickly, um, given that that's kind of the speed at which coaching carousels move these days. Um, an East Coast guy is uh, kind of staying East, uh, you know, with hopefully we'll have some recruiting benefits for Maryland. But, Brett, what do you think of the hire? Yeah, so, I mean, it, first of all, I, I actually really like the hire. Um, you know, Kevin Willard comes off what, geez, 12 years at Seton Hall. And when, when he got there, Seton Hall was, was a laughing stock. You know, they hadn't had really many, much success in it kind of since, you know, in the, in the two thousands. Um, and you know, he brought, he got them to the second, the NIT 
pretty much right away. And, um, you know, and then although it took, it took, it took a little bit to get back, uh, you know, there were four straight tournaments. Uh, they would have made it in, you know, uh, they, they, they tied for first in the big East when the, the big tournament was canceled. Uh, and then, um, you know, after a weird year last year, they were back in the tournament this year. Um, Seton Hall's not, a, not an easy place to win. Um, a lot of the basketball talent kind of in that area goes elsewhere. Uh, and he made them a respectable team again. And, you know, Maryland isn't quite the level of, of bad that anywhere near the level of bad that, that Seton Hall was prior to Willard going there. Um, but so, you know, and, and having talked to some Maryland basketball fans the other, in, in the last kind of week or so, you know, Patino was on the table in theory, like there are other relatively big names. I mean, this isn't a great year to be needing a, a coach right now, at least, but and I don't think they really wanted to go the mid the mid major route. So I think I think this is about as good of a hire as, as they could ask for. I mean, and we'll see kind of what what relationships he keeps with with guys from with the schools in Jersey and how he adapts to, to you know, your DeMathas, your your other kind of Maryland powerhouses. But I think from a from a basketball perspective, this is this is a good hire. Yeah. And the only the only thing I'll add is just stylistically, the Big East plays a similar style, I think, to the Big Ten. So that style of tough defense, grinding it out, will will translate very well to Maryland. Um, we'll, we know we're going long here. Um, we'll give you a quick preview of the two games to look out for this weekend, and then we'll let you all go. Uh, so first on Thursday, Michigan takes on two-seeded Villanova in the Sweet 16. We know everything about Michigan. Villanova um, may not have the height to hang with Michigan's bigs, Hunter Dickinson specifically, but, you know, they're solid in many aspects. They have, you know, a reigning Big East player of the year in Colin Gillespie. Um, Justin, Justin Moore is solid. Um, and, you know, they're, they're going to play tough defense and they're going to execute like any other Villanova team. How do you think Michigan lines up against them and what do they have to do to win? They got to play defense. They absolutely have to play interior defense. Villanova's guards are going to Villanova's wings and guards are going to be looking to attack. And Colin Gillespie is is actually pretty good in the post up game. So if if he's got you know your your Eli Brooks, your Devonte Jones, your Frankie Collins, he's going to be taking them into the post and seeing if he can get to the free throw line uh, or if he can you know just kind of outmaneuver them in the post. This is a game where Hunter Dickinson cannot be asleep on defense. I've harped on him for this pretty much all year, but Villanova is going to be attacking the basket and trying to draw fouls. I'm assuming at least, but they will be attacking the basket. I'm assuming they're going to, you know, try and maneuver Dickinson and Diabate out of the game to kind of counteract the height differential because Villanova's tallest rotation player is Eric Dixon. And he's, he's six, eight, and he's, he's certainly capable in a, in an offensive threat, um, which will help kind of spread out Michigan's defense. But, uh, you know, Villanova's an okay deep. They're, they're actually, they grade out pretty well. They're 30th in the country in defensive efficiency, but, uh, they don't have to see a lot of the height that Michigan has. So, this is a game where you have to give Dickinson the ball and let him establish in the post early and often open up things for your shooters. Hope Caleb, Caleb Houston can hit a couple to, to stave away the double teams. And you, you just got to You got to really, really work hard on the defensive end to, to counteract with Jay Wright's offense. The winner of that game will take on the winner of Arizona and Houston. So we, we heard a lot about Houston, uh, but Arizona kind of came off a thrilling win over TCU to advance. So, um, you know, uh, that's what the road ahead looks like for, for Michigan there. Um, flipping to Purdue now, uh, they, they play the Cinderella of the tournament, uh, the St. Peter's Peacocks. Um, on the surface of it, it, it looks like Purdue should have a substantial advantage on the interior like they do in every game. 
Um, but what does Purdue have to do to avoid being the next victim of this uh, Cinderella uh, team that they're facing in the Peacocks here? Honestly, I think it's mostly mental. Um, you know, you've got you've got all of America outside of West Lafayette, Indiana, pulling for St. Peter's. And you just have to stay in and, and you know, grind the tape, figure out a plan and just execute. You know, you can't get too cute with the ball. Um, I mean, I, I St. Peter's beat a Kentucky team that has, you know, athletes that are around the same caliber as Jaden Ivey. They've dealt with Oscar Shibway, I mean, who's shorter than Zach Eady and Travion Williams, but still still that kind of menace on the glass. And, you know, they were able to kind of dictate the tempo and and not let teams get out into transition. And that's really what Purdue is going to have to have to really try and do is hope that they don't get caught up in, you know, in ball screens again. You stick on Doug Edert. Uh, you don't let him you don't let him get free. Uh, he shoots 42 percent from three. Uh, and, you know, you just kind of try and bully Casey and Defo into, you know, in the post. And I mean, he's none of their their tallest rotation player is is six seven and I this is a game in theory Williams and Edie should just make a living on the blocks and I think that you know Matt Painter I will have his guys ready but you just you can't get caught up in in the Cinderella angle if you're Purdue. Keep in mind this game played in uh, in Philadelphia so we'll see how the Jersey contingent shows up for that. And the winner of this game takes on uh, the winner of North Carolina and UCLA. UCLA, you know, potentially staring at an injury for Jaime Hawkins. Uh, North Carolina coming up off of a, a huge upset of number one seeded Baylor there. So, uh, you know, Purdue looking up at at their draw right now. They're the highest seed remaining in their region. Um, you know, playing a 15 seed. Uh, no excuses at this point. Thank you very much for tuning in to um, – what was the hopefully the most exciting uh, recap yet? Um, a lot of life still left for the Big Ten, despite um, disappointment in the early rounds. We'll be with you uh, here with you, regardless of of the outcomes. Um, you can catch us next week for what will be hopefully a recap of of a, a teams that are are still moving on. Um, but as we know, this is March. Um, we do not know what's going to happen. We're just here along with you for the journey. Um, Thanks as always for tuning in.